Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. At, at any point or at what point did you yourself come to think that there was a racial component to this shooting? The first day. Why? It's a predominantly white neighborhood. And there's a young black man in the street dead. Why? Sometimes a, a story starts with why, and that's, that's about all I had was why. I'm Steve Fennessy. This week on Georgia Today, Larry Hobbs, a general assignment and police reporter for the Brunswick News in southeast Georgia. Larry was the first journalist to cover the shooting death of 25-year-old Ahmad Arbery, outside Brunswick in late February. And for two months, until the story was featured in the New York Times, Larry was the only reporter covering the shooting and its aftermath. Today, Larry recalls the strange, silent days and weeks after Arbery's death, the pinball movements as the case bounced from prosecutor to prosecutor, and what this story has revealed about the community he covers. It's a community he's been a part of now for a decade. Ten years now. What brought you there? I was stuck out in Spokane, Washington, because uh, jobs were lousy, and I left Mobile. Uh, let's call it a fine midlife crisis, and uh, went out there to work on a dairy farm, which was kind of fun. And I told them, I said, "It's beautiful." It and you know, and I was hearing about three feet of snow coming up. I said, "It's beautiful. You people are nice, but I got to be back in the south, and I need salt air on my skin, just like I've grown up with." And I had an old friend that lived in Brunswick, Georgia, where I'd never been to. I loved it because it it is it did seem to be a place that's kind of eclectic, kind of egalitarian. Uh, everybody seemed to get along. Um, an, an ideal little southern town. How about that? And you took to writing a history column for the paper, among your other duties. Yes, sir. How did that start? I mean, there's literally 6,000 years of Native American history there, followed by Spanish uh, settlement, then the English settlement, uh, and all the eras that go through it. There's, you know, 500-plus years of, of European history there. Um that you know documented and uh it's just a fascinating place and the more i started learning about it the more the more it fascinated me tell us about being a cops reporter i don't know you know it's just something i've done so long i, I don't really think about it sometimes i get tired of it because it is uh it's a lot of tragedy in a lot of people's lives usually take a take a take a neat breath take a prayer when there's you know, when there's um, death involved in these, and, uh, you know, somebody's out there suffering. Ahmad Arbery was shot on Sunday afternoon, February 23rd, at the early afternoon hours. Larry, when did you first hear about it? I heard late, like 11 o'clock, that somebody, there was a shooting in Satilla Shores. And um, first thing the next morning, I tried, uh, there was a entry, we get a daily police log. These come out like before dawn, and I'll look at them over my coffee when I wake up in the morning. 
It's the date, location, time of the event, and usually the type of event. And this was not listed as a death or as a shooting. It was listed as um, a suspicious incident. This is how little um, was being given out on this. And uh, then I called the coroner, Mark New, and uh, he gave me Mr. Arbery's name and his next of kin had been notified. And he gave me his name and his age. And that's basically all I had for that first story. There were three shootings that weekend. Uh, that um, Mr. Arbery was shot because at one point we combined all the stories but then Mr. Arbery's story came out as a separate one because it just it something struck me this is different than the others and what was that why did somebody get shot at the intersection of a street on a Sunday afternoon uh, in a quiet suburban slash rural neighborhood So what's next? What do you do then? I put in a request for the police report. They said it's not done. This was a, of course, a, a typical. I want the I want the full police report. Um, it was not available. Uh, something like this, I expect them possibly a press conference or at least a press release explaining in further detail what's going on. But in the meantime. I just put in a public records request, made it a formal public records request for the, the report. Before the Arbery shooting, uh, you know, when was the last uh, shooting death, uh, a homicide within your coverage area within Glynn County? Well, it's, you know, it's not Mayberry. Uh, we had a shooting death in December, a uh, federal law enforcement training officer from the Maryland area was down here and he was in a bar. He got in an argument. He tried to break an argument up and he got shot and died on the streets of St. Simons Island. Uh, by the end of that day, Sunday, this happened late, late early in the, the wee hours of Sunday morning, let's call it. The next day, there was a press release and there were police officers talking to us and telling us, what happened in that situation um and we had a uh you know not a complete story but a pretty good story and then even more information came out the next day uh, and that was a step ahead Go that's, ahead. A, that's a typical standard operating procedures which made the sort of the crickets you heard after the arbory shooting all the more um sort of unique thank you that's where i was heading <laughs> it just you know there was nothing uh, they sent out a press release that was two sentences that saying that they weren't going to tell us anything and that they were investigating in conjunction with the quote unquote uh, district attorney's office. They didn't bother to tell us the, which district attorney's office. I got a call from an attorney. I believe it was an attorney that said uh, you might want to check because this case is not with uh, the Brunswick Judicial Circuit. It's gone out to Ware County, uh, to a Waycross Judicial Circuit. And that was my next story when I called and confirmed that indeed they have a conflict of interest, and that's when I found out that Greg McMichaels was a former investigator who had retired the, the last May uh, 2019. 
And Greg McMichael is the father of Travis McMichael, who uh, was the one who had the shotgun uh, that, that ended up killing Ahmaud Arbery. Correct. Tell me a little bit about Jackie Johnson, who is the Brunswick district attorney, um, and where that conflict of interest actually lay. She felt that since he worked with the, uh, that he worked there for more than 20 years for her department as a, as an investigator that- Gregory um, Michael. Gregory McMichael, yes, sir. Um, That he worked there, uh, that that presented a conflict of interest for her department to prosecute this. Um, One of my investigators contacted me and said he had heard something about there was a shooting in in that neighborhood and and he may, and my investigator may be involved, or my former investigator. And I told the person that called me, I says, look, we cannot be involved in that. We cannot go out there. We cannot do anything. And that was... Jackie Johnson, this is an interview in May on the Butch and Bob show from WIFO Radio in Jessup, Georgia. Johnson says that once she recused herself, she reached out to neighboring DA George Barnhill of the Waycross Judicial Circuit. I have been intentionally ignorant about the facts and law of this case because I knew I could not have any involvement in the case. Um, the one mistake I made in this case, again, was trying to be helpful to the police because I knew it was a serious situation and, and somebody needed to make a decision about what needed to happen. We couldn't be involved, and so I offered to try to get help from a neighboring circuit. How typical is it to to move a case to another DA because of, you know, a perceived or actual conflict of interest? Is that a does that happen frequently? I'd have to dig my memory, but uh, going on six years here, I don't recall that happening. But this one went out to George E. Barnhill out in Waycross, and I called him about six times when I found out and finally got him. And he's the one that gave me information that a little bit more information that this thing ends with two men standing over Mr. Arbery with guns. At least three men were standing over him, but two of them were with guns. And I could say, I asked, could can we assume that's uh, uh, Travis and Gregory McMichael, or at least two of them? And uh, he, I'm pretty sure he said yes. And uh, he was waiting on autopsy and toxicology report and bullet trajectory and sounded like he was taking this pretty serious this this investigation i talked to him first on the 27th okay four Uh, days after the shooting right so i'm I'm curious with with um with homicides being such a rarity there um a relative rarity what was happening in the community that you were hearing about surrounding ahmaud arbery's death um a lot of hush hush um Nobody really wanted to talk. The guy that lived right across the street from where it happened said that there were some families out there that were trying to put up a, a cross and a memorial for Ahmad later that day. Well, well, what was your interaction with, with the Arbury family? Um, um, none, and that's, that's on me, but the, it was none. I got an email after I wrote the story that Mr. Barnhill and Waycross was off the case. I wrote the story that uh, mentioned that, you know, that this is some people are raising issues about this being a black and white issue and, and, and racial, racially motivated. That's the point where I got an email and the lady who emailed me, I didn't know her name at the time, said, why are you trying to make this a black and white thing? And um, 
uh, very diplomatically, I said, I wrote back, I'm not making it a black and white thing, but the community is raising that question, and I have an obligation to reflect uh, the community that we serve's concerns. And I got an email back in two seconds. Well, I'm Ahmad's mom, and um, it just seems unfair. I felt kind of like a, you know, kind of a jerk. Uh, I sent her back immediately to let her know that our family's been in my prayers since, you know, since I found out about his death. Uh, and that and that to please call me, that's pretty much the only interaction I had with her. His mother, Ahmad's mo- mother, was becoming very active in in looking into her son's case, no? The story that she says they told her it is not what happened in any sense of the word. Um, she says that they told her that her son was killed in a house during a struggle for a gun during the process of a burglary. In the midst of the burglary, um, there was a confrontation between Ahmad and the homeowner. And there was a, um, a tussle over the, the firearm. And unfortunately, Ahmad was, was, was shot and killed. It didn't sound right, but at the, at the moment, I had to deal with, I had lost my baby boy. I can't really, I, I was feeling nothing. To be honest with you, I can't really describe the feeling because I'd never felt anything like that before. And no one from the police department has come forward to refute it. Um, that's when I was wondering, how come no one was arrested? In his, um, the people got upset with me for uh, maybe the way I portrayed the way this went down, but it came straight from the narrative in the police report, which is from Greg McMichael's own words. He was standing in the front yard of 230 Satilla Drive, which is just a little bit farther down from this house that's under construction, which is completely open. There's bay doors. There's bay. There's no doors. You can walk right in it. Um, he sees in the report a black man hauling ass down the road. 911 was the address of emergency. Uh, I'm out here at Satilla Shores. There's a black male running down the street. Satilla, where, where, where at? Uh, you can hear him scream, and it sounds like he's uh, shouting for uh, Mr. Arbery to stop. They stop him. Travis McMichael gets out of the car with a shotgun, and he says that he violently struggled for the for the shotgun, and that's when he shot. It said two times. We know now it's three times. The police report said two times. Uh, was shot and left for dead. The point of this story, to me, and the whole point of that report and why somebody wasn't arrested, we got point A and point B is the point of this story. Their house, at least a block, it looks like now they chased him a lot longer than that, but at least a block down the street on a neighborhood street on a Sunday afternoon, uh, this man's shot dead. And in your April 2nd story, this is over a month past the shooting. Right. And the reason you did it then is that was when you finally, after 
what five finally weeks, got some five information weeks, got the yeah. got the police report and i was dumbfounded that this was in his words what he did and they can't look at what and you, you i'm not i'm not legal but you look at that and tell me let's let me ask you i'm do you get to jump? Do you get to run into your house, grab your guns, and get in a car and chase and truck and chase somebody for a block and shoot them dead, um, and not get arrested? Well, uh, George Barnhill seemed to think so, at least from a letter he wrote when he was still the prosecutor on the case. I think that letter you're talking, you're referring to, uh, is actually a letter to the Brunt, the Glen County Police Department. Okay. Where he is saying that uh, they were in the course of a citizen's arrest and self-defense was employed uh, legally, in his opinion. That wasn't a formal opinion, but that was his opinion. Um, I've read the letter, and it's, uh, I'm not a legal person, but it baffles me. Ahmad's mom, Wanda Cooper-Jones, is uh, also bringing up potential conflicts of interest um, within George Barnhill's office. Tell us about that. George Barnhill has a son, George Barnhill Jr., who works in the Brunswick District Attorney's Office. He's an attorney there. We find out later that Barnhill Jr., the son, worked with Greg McMichael years earlier uh, in putting together the prosecution of Mr. Arbery for an incident that occurred when he was about, I think he was 17, uh, and brought a gun into the Brunswick Gymnasium for a the Brunswick High Glen Academy uh, basketball game, which is like a big robbery. So the uh, auditorium was full, and that was anyway that was that was a big deal. It made front page news in our paper. And and Larry, you wrote about. Um Ahmad Arbery's um, interactions with law enforcement, that gun incident, in a story that came out uh, Thursday, February 28th, just four days after his passing. What was the reaction in the community to that? That one wasn't that much. And, and you know, I, it's a tough call sometimes, but I felt it was warranted. We also mentioned some, he made front page news in our newspaper as a as an all-star linebacker for Brunswick High, we included information on that too. Just, you know, all the facts that I could get. There was not much from that one. The one that it was mentioned again when we finally got our hands on the the police report for an article that ran April 2. And I got a lot of flack from that. Uh, and not just locally, um, nationally and internationally. Hundreds of letters. Hundreds of letters? Yes. What were they saying? Uh, that I'm a racist, um, that I'm things you would not want to to repeat. Just uh, people are angry. Uh, they somehow interpreted the mentioning of the fact that he had a previous arrest as me being a racist who is pulling for the McMichaels and trying to justify what the McMichaels did. How they can... <sighs> how people can work out that it's justifiable, that it might be justifiable or might be used to be justifiable to shoot a man in broad daylight on a neighborhood street. <sighs> Do the math. Five, six years after, the, after an incident in which he got arrested in, a, in the Brunswick High Gymnasium, um, that baffles me, but people went with that. 
And did um, you did you engage with any of these folks? What did you tell them why? when they said, why did you bother? Why did you put that in there? Why is that relevant? Um, I said it, it made front page in this news in, in, in our community as bringing a gun on campus in this day and age does. You know, I spent some time looking at your stories and, and you mentioned his um, uh, the gun incident at the high school in a, in a February 28th story. But you're saying it was it was mentioning that same case in an April two story more than a month later that is what kind of uh, got you a lot of criticism. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Um, so what's the difference between what what happened in that in that month? More people are paying attention to this story. Okay. Uh, there's also a a group that started sort of a grassroots group, um, very organized, very um, responsible in, in the way they go about it, called I Run With Maud. This group brought this up very responsibly as a race issue and um, told people, advised people who were following it that, you know, that you have uh, rights to ask, make public records request of the district attorney, of the police department, of the district attorney in Waycross, and we encourage you to do so. And apparently those agencies, those departments and offices got overwhelmed as a result. And, and back to the, the letter that George Barnhill wrote, uh, he references in this letter um, concerns raised by Ahmad's mother, Wanda Cooper-Jones about conflicts of interest uh, that she saw, um, in which he denies a bias, but does turn the case over to a third prosecutor. He steps down from the case. It's up to the uh, uh, Georgia Attorney General to assign it to a third prosecutor. But okay. yes, he, he steps down. It, it sounds like Wanda Cooper-Jones and, and those sort of allied with her cause uh, were putting pressure on George Barnhill to recuse himself, and that pressure was effective. Yes. So now it goes to an, a man named Tom Durden in Liberty County. And Durden represents the third prosecutor on this case. Is that correct? Right. It's hard to keep track. It is. He said he's going to look over this thing and uh, take it with uh, fresh eyes from a fresh start. Up to now, this has been pretty much exclusively, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, a story that, that you, Larry Hobbs, has been covering for the Brunswick News. Yes, sir. But then something happens. The New York Times comes to town and reports the story. What happened next? I thought to myself, it's about time. <laughs> and I, I, Why'd you, why why did you think that? It's a big story. Here's a reporter from the New York Times, has some time to come in here, talk to people in detail, worry about Nothing but this story, not worrying about filling up a newspaper each day, which is what community newspapers do. And he was able to come in and spend a good deal of time here and put together a well-rounded story. A lot of it uh, plowed some ground I'd already plowed before, but uh, there was a lot of it was quite enlightening. Um, he got a little bit more into the details about the fact that Mr. Arbery was known as a runner, uh, a jogger, and a, and a health, health fitness then the Atlanta Journal-Constitution came out with something. The next thing you know, it's on CNN. I want to tell you about the story tonight. It's a family, uh, the family of Ahmaud Arbery, uh, and they are asking for justice. It, the story was bigger than me and a small, a small town community paper. Right. But not that we don't have a role, and we've played an important role in this, in my opinion, a very important role. 
we talked about the New York Times. The so then now that there's there's larger national outlets coming in, and then uh, in early May, the video is is revealed. Akeem Baker, a close friend of Ahmad Arbery, watched the video. To just watch that video, and uh, just uh, some days I just wake up just crying because clips um, keep replaying in my head. It's, it's, it's just devastating um, that 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 had to happen. That that happened to someone, and you know it was like a a, a clip from the 1920s and Miss uh, or Mississippi Burning movie or something like that. It was. This is 2020, and this is still happening. Larry, tell me about where you were when you first saw the video. I was in my office. Um, I'd come into the office that day and uh, called it up, and um, I, I just was, I had no words. I was speechless. It looks like a hunt for a person. It's, um, it's abominable. Ahmad's mom, Wanda Cooper-Jones, recalled conversations she had with her son about the challenges he would face as a black man in America. We really had to talk when he got the age where he was driving, because if he was driving off, I wasn't there to protect him. So we, we had several, several conversations about how to conduct himself if he's pulled over. But I told him, you know, I mean, you are, you are an African-American and you are in South Georgia. So please be careful. Larry, like me, you're a white man in America. How has this case changed your perception of race relations in the country? It's, it's made me think deeper about concerns that black members of this community, African-American communities, members of this community might have uh, with regards to their safety that I don't have and to take, um, not that I have ignored or brushed these off when I've heard about them, but to give them a little deeper thought and to understand that uh, there's folks out there that um, are members of my community um, that, that might be going through some tougher things yeah. or, or might, might have some different perspectives on things that I have that we would go through every day. Right. Things we encounter every day. It just made me think a little harder about that. Our thanks to Brunswick News reporter Larry Hobbs. On May 11th, Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr appointed Cobb County DA Joyette Holmes to oversee the prosecution. Holmes represents the fourth DA to be on this case. We have to play by the rules that are given. But we know that, as I've said, we need to swiftly, thoroughly, and transparently move this case forward. And I'm confident that Joyette and her team will do that as well from the state's perspective. Carr has also asked the state GBI and federal authorities to investigate the conduct of the initial prosecutors in the case. We'll continue following this case as it moves forward. I'm Steve Fennessy. This is Georgia Today. Our show is produced by Sean Powers. Thanks for listening.
I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.